I sat down, I just met someone new, and I just sat down and I realized that I didn't say who I was when I got up here this morning. So I'm the youth pastor, you know that, but it's right here. It will be up here. Um, my name is Kristen Attig-Wells, um, and I am the youth pastor, and Kyle this morning is out of town. He is on our men's retreat. That's why um, we're a little bit sparse on our men this morning. Um, but he's on our men's retreat, and so he asked me, would you speak this morning? And so I'm happy to do that to fill in so that he can fill his cup this week. The work of ministry is really some draining work sometimes, and so I'm excited for him to just get some time to just be with the guys and just relax. And so that's what he's doing this weekend. Um, so I'm happy to be here up here this morning and be able to share a little bit of my heart. I don't know if you've ever received a letter that was especially significant to you, but I remember when I was maybe 10 or so, asking my grandfather, who was a pastor, if I could have one of his Bibles to keep as a treasure. There's something really special about being able to look through the margins of someone's Bible and see what is important to them, what stood out to them. And so that was really a treasure for me, but what was more a treasure for me is that inside this, old, or this New Testament was a letter written to me in my grandfather's pen. And uh, he just put down a few of his favorite Bible verses encouraging me to let God's word be my guide. And this letter became really meaningful to me. About nine years later, I found myself at Olivet Nazarene University studying youth ministry. And those were some really, some very sweet years for me. Uh, and I made some really great friends. Jimmy Phillips was one of those friends. And Jimmy would write me handwritten letters on homemade stationery. He would seal those letters with a wax seal, and he would sign each letter from Russia with love, Jimmy. Jimmy was from Moni, Illinois. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure that he had never been to Russia. Uh, Jimmy, I remember one Christmas he sent me a letter, and it was, it was handwritten, of course, in his fashion, uh, but it was a Christmas newsletter. And I knew I was special to Jimmy because he gave me a Christmas newsletter, a handwritten Christmas newsletter, not like anybody else's Christmas newsletter. I just thought that was so special. And I, as you know how you go through your old things, and, and, and so I've got my stacks of cards and letters, and every couple years I'll go through and I'll make a sweep and I'll think, okay, like, is this person still in my life? Is this important to keep? And Jimmy's letters always stay in the keep pile. All of them. I have all of them. Because they're beautiful, but they're real and they're raw and they're to me. They're personal. Several years after college, I met my now husband, Wesley, and we just got married this past July, if I will just quit reminding you. We just got married this past July. <laughs> Fun times. And so... Uh, we were long distance for a time when we were dating. And he lived in Memphis, and I lived in, here in St. Louis. And, of course, we would FaceTime, and we would chat on the phone. But we'd also write each other letters. And I remember the first time that Wesley ever professed his love to me, it was through a letter. And so we keep... Thank you. I know. My grandparents met through letters, too. It's just, it's a, important. We... We keep shoeboxes full of these letters. And in the age of texting and social media, letter writing is almost a lost art, right? 
But when you pick up a journal or a letter, it's a rare insight into the heart of a person. William Barclay says that there is both difficulty and beauty in letters. Beauty because in the there's vulnerability in the letter, right? We, we can often, when we're reading, we can discern the writer's character. But there is also difficulty in letters, particularly when we pick up a letter that was written to someone else. Because it's like listening to one end of a phone conversation. We're going to be reading a passage from the lectionary this morning. And the lectionary contains pre-selected passages for specific calendar dates. And it's a tool that the global church uses to make sure that we remain faithful to Scripture. So that over the course of three years, we get a picture of who God is from Genesis to Revelation. So we're going to be reading out of the lectionary this morning, last week's reading. As you may have imagined this morning, we're going to be reading a letter. Paul's letters or epistles are much of the New Testament, and he's often writing to a specific church congregation in a pretty precise format. He'll open with a greeting and move on to prayer, to thanksgiving, to special content, to personal greetings. And 1 Timothy is the first of three pastoral epistles. Paul is passionate, but we can hear this personal tone that's different than what we observe in the other letters. And I want you to listen for that this morning. And so if you would, as you're able, stand with me for the reading of God's word. I'm going to start in 1 Timothy 6, verses 16 through 9, 6 through 19, rather. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession. I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one can see, has seen or can see. To him be honor and might forever. Amen. Commend the, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. 
In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. The word of God for the people of God. And we all say together, thanks be to God. You may be seated. This morning, we're going to examine the excerpt of this letter that we just read. And it's important to know that this letter was not written to us, nor was it written with us in mind. It's a letter written from the Apostle Paul to Timothy. Now, a little background on Paul. Paul has not always been a follower of Jesus. In fact, Paul has not even always been named Paul. Paul started out with his given name, Saul. And Saul was known as a persecutor of Christians. But Jesus appeared to Saul, and his life was dramatically changed. And he cha- his, his name was changed to Paul. And he goes from being a persecutor of Christians to proclaiming the good news of Jesus. He's a traveling evangelist of sorts, spreading the good news. And he actually finds himself on the opposite end of the spectrum, imprisoned for the very work that he was once against. Paul has lived a life, and he is passionate. And when he believes in something, he goes for it. And Paul has some men- someone he mentors named Timothy, because what Paul knows is that he's not going to be around forever. And not only that, but Paul believes in multiplication. He knows that he can't reach everyone, and so he mentors people that will help him in the work of spreading the good news, the gospel. This is such a rich excerpt from this letter that we read this morning. He's saying these things to Timothy with such concern for his life and for his well-being, for his holiness. And as we read this, as I said earlier, it's really important, I want you to get this, it's really important to remember that this letter was not written for us, nor was it written with us in mind. But because it's a part of God's living and active word, because it's a part of the Bible, he can use it to shine light onto our lives, into our lives right now today. And so I just want to pray that God would do that this morning, if you'll bow your heads with me. Lord, in the silence of this moment, we pray that you would reveal your truth to us today and work your will in our lives. Amen. We're going to unpack some things this morning. We're going to kind of look at that first chunk of the scripture. And at first this morning, I want to ask you, have you ever been discontent? I found myself with feelings of discontent in the past several weeks. Uh, My husband, Wesley, is from Arkansas, and he went to school at the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And two times a year in the fall, his college ministry will host a tailgate, and it will be before or after the football game. And to tell you the truth, Arkansas in the past few years has not been so hot at football. Uh, They're more of a baseball school lately. But um, Wesley has two brothers that go to Arkansas, and so it's as much of an an excuse for a family weekend as anything else. And so while Wesley is in Fayetteville, they show him this new pie shop, Rymaline's Pie Shop. And Wesley sends me a list of almost 50 different types of pie that this shop has, from sweet egg custard, to Kentucky Derby pecan, to 
blueberry goat cheese. I mean, he's telling me about this excursion with his family, and I'm feeling discontent. But to make up for it, Wesley comes home from his trip, and he brings me some pie from Rymaline's Pie Shop as a surprise. This is like the only surprise he's ever kept. He shows up with some pie from Rymaline's, and he tells me about just, you know, just how great this pie shop is. And they even had this pie called um, a razorback apple pie, which Arkansas is the razorbacks of wild hogs. And so uh, in this pie, this apple pie apparently has bacon in it. And so we're just like, oh, that's so funny. And so the next Saturday, the Arkansas Razorbacks are playing, and Wesley likes to watch that game. And so I think I know what I'll do. I'll make some of that, something like that Razorback apple pie that Wesley was talking about. And so I send him out to the store, and I say, I want you to get some Granny Smith apples and, I, and just like maybe the most expensive bacon you can buy at Schnuck. Because I want this pie to be an experience, okay? And so I make this homemade crust while he's gone, and I slice up the apples, and I put the spices together to make the filling, and then I put it all together, and I weave this bacon into the perfect lattice top on top of this pie. And I'm going to throw a picture up here. I mean... And the smells are wafting through the air in our house as we're watching the Razorback game. And it's like, if I have ever had a proud wife moment in my three months of marriage, this <laughs> is my moment. So we're thinking about this pie most of the day. And we've sent pictures to all our friends. We've posted pictures on social media. You probably saw it if you follow Wesley. We are, like, proud of this pie. Well, the Lord has some ways of humbling you. And we have a little puppy dog named Faye. And Faye smelled the apple pie. And she helped herself to my $10 bill. And she left all but two pieces of bacon on that pie. <laughs> Have you ever had a moment of discontent? Man, this was a moment for me. But for real, have you ever had a moment of discontent, maybe wishing for something or wanting something that wasn't in the cards at least yet? God, if you really loved me, you would have given me this opportunity. God, I've been faithful why didn't I get that promotion? God, I've been a servant. Why didn't you allow this to happen? God, I've been seeking you, and on and on. And I don't have easy answers. I know that one of my go-to phrases when people ask me why bad things happen is because sin is present in our world. And so things may be different than we hoped that they would be. But I don't know why blessings are selected. And I wish there was some sort of formula that I could give you so that you could figure that out so we would at least know when our turn was coming. I use this example frequently, but when I remember when I was single, really desiring the companionship of a romantic relationship. I was almost bred to be a wife and a mom, as you saw by that pie. I was wife material. And so it was... No pressure from my own family, but 
that was a very high value in my heart. And I went away to a small Christian school where I knew I would meet my Mr. Right. It was not a matter of if, it was a matter of when, because ring by spring, they said. And four springs came and four springs went, and I graduated from Olivet without a ring on my finger, and feelings of discontent began to creep in, and I began my adult life alone. I moved to St. Louis, a community where I had no family, and you all became my family. But still, I began to feel these feelings of discontent, and I began to believe that in some way, at least, God had forgotten about me and this strong desire of my heart. I knew that wasn't true, right? But in my heart, it was really hard for me to separate what I believed about God from my circumstances. There was almost this entitlement, and sometimes I feel like this is still true. There's this entitlement that I feel because I've given my life to Jesus. But what Paul says to Timothy is simple yet very profound. In that opening line in verse 6, he says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. Paul often talks about the importance of being content. And one of the things that contentment carries with it is this idea of self-sufficiency. It means that my inward attitude to life is completely independent of outward things. When Paul is talking to the Philippians, to the church at Philippi, in a different letter, he says in Philippians 4.11, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I can be content whatever their circumstances, not dependent on outward things. But Paul says to Timothy in that first section, you would do well to pair your godliness with contentment. To not let what you believe about God be influenced by what you have or don't have. Man, that's not easy. But Paul goes on, He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And I look at this passage and I think that Paul is speaking from experience. Maybe his own experience, maybe some experience that he's seen with other people. But Paul knows about the temptation to put your hope in things. And Paul points out this particular thing that many people have put their hope in, and that's money. One of the most commonly misquoted pieces of scripture, Paul does not say money is the root of all evil. Paul says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. You may be familiar with a story in the Gospels, in one of the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where Jesus has a conversation with the the rich young ruler, and this man comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, 
you're going to need to keep some commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness. Love your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man is feeling so good. And he says to Jesus, I've kept all these commandments. What do I still lack? And I just imagine there's some like pride welling up inside of him whenever he's saying this. And Jesus says, if you wish to be perfect, go and sell everything you have and then come follow me. And then the Gospels say, there's different accounts of this story, but the Gospels say that this man goes away and he's so sad because he has a lot of possessions. He's got great wealth. And this story is a prime example of someone who finds themselves entangled in the love of money. I want to break down the words of one of my very favorite commentators who I talked about earlier, William Barclay. This is what he says about the dangers of money, of the love of money, rather. The love of money, first, tends to be a thirst that cannot be satisfied. I don't know if you've ever been to the ocean, uh, if you've ever taken in just a big gulp of seawater, you actually, you don't even have to take in the gold. It will just sit in salt crystals on your lips. Now I want you to think about the thirstiest that you've ever been. Maybe after a, a, long, a long hike on a hot day. Actually, to be super transparent with you, one of my thirstiest moments has been after eating ice cream at a Cardinals baseball game. Uh, my husband, Wesley, is a super huge baseball fan and an even bigger Cardinals fan. So we go to a lot of games. In fact, we're going to a game this afternoon. But Wesley stands by this mantra that there are few greater pleasures in life than eating ice cream out of one of those souvenir plastic helmets. You know the kind? And it is good. But the thing that I often forget when I eat ice cream is that ice cream breeds thirst. And I am not about to, after I've spend, spent the extra money on this souvenir helmet, I am not about to spend more money on a bottle of water that is severely overpriced. And I was a preschool teacher once, and so I do not make a habit of using those drinking fountains you see what happens at those drinking fountains? So it is oftentimes we have to make it to the seventh inning, and then my husband will buy me ice cream. And then I might wait, if it's a long game, several hours still to get water at my house because I am too cheap to buy water at the game. But maybe you've had one of those moments where you've become just really thirsty and you've reached a level of thirst that becomes almost unquenchable. The love of money is like this. It tends to be a thirst that is unquenchable, like drinking glass after glass of salt water. It's never enough. The second danger of the love of money is that the love of money is founded on the illusion of security. When I moved to St. Louis, I was a single part-time youth pastor living in fear. I split my time between my job here at the church and a job at the Chesterfield Chick-fil-A at Airport Road. 
And God provided me with those opportunities, but it never seemed like enough. And I would live on the bare minimum, putting away hundreds of dollars a month in savings because I wanted the security that I thought my money could offer me. But the security was an illusion because it was never enough. Because no matter how many thousands of dollars I had in my bank account, it could never afford the security that I hoped it would. The third danger of the love of money is that the love of money tends to make people selfish. If I'm preoccupied with worrying about what I have, I'm never going to ask you what you need. The love of money can prevent us from being generous. The love of money can put us into situations where we fail to steward our resources in ways that bless others. We become very self-centered with our resources. And in verse 7 of this letter, or verse 7 of chapter 6, it says, For we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of it. We can't take it with us when we go, but sometimes we sure live like it. The fourth and final danger of the love of money is that the love of money may lead people into the wrong ways of getting it. Verse 9, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The love of money will ruin us if we let it. But can I reframe something for you this morning? Let's look at one of these gospel accounts of Jesus' conversation with the rich young ruler. Let's take a look at what Matthew says about this story. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 22, it says, Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me? about what is good, Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All of these things I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Every church has a lens through which they view Scripture. And that lens is just a little bit different if you're Baptist or Catholic or Presbyterian, even if you're non-denominational. The church that you've walked into this, this morning is a church of the Nazarene. It's a part of the Wesleyan holiness tradition, very similar to a United Methodist Church, if you've heard of that. But John Wesley is the founder of our Wesleyan tradition. And he would look at this story of the rich young ruler and he would say that, that, that Jesus' command to this young man was very specific. He was giving him a very specific direction. And that this command was not meant to be for generalized youth. Use, rather. Uh, 
For him, it was necessary to his salvation. But to us, it is not. John Wesley would say, we don't have to get rid of everything we own in, in order to follow Jesus. Isn't that good news this morning? I'm excited about it. But my question for us is, if John Wesley is right, and we can't generalize what Jesus says there, what did Jesus mean? Why did Jesus point this out to this young man? If you'll notice, there were several commandments that Jesus required of this man. Starting in verse 18, it says, Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you've been around the church long enough, you understand that these are not arbitrary commandments. These are part of the Ten Commandments, a large part of Jewish tradition listed in Exodus chapter 20, long before the time of Jesus on earth. When Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai and he receives these special instructions from God, the, the commandments that Jesus is listing are of those ten. But you'll notice that there were not ten listed, that Jesus leaves out a few commandments, specifically one that Jesus will later call, a few chapters later, the greatest commandment. In Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 36, Jesus is having a different conversation with a different young man, where the young man says, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. And I think I would have remembered this one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That was certainly not in the conversation that he had with the rich young ruler. And why does Jesus leave this out? I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that Jesus didn't just forget the greatest commandment. If he thinks it's the greatest commandment, why didn't he say that? I think that the reason that Jesus was able to leave this commandment out in the conversation that he's having with the young man is because he wants to be even more specific. He wants there to be no mistaking what the commandments say about loving the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Because Jesus knows that this young man's heart is not fully God's. That though he's kept the other commandments, the thing that's keeping him from fully following Jesus with every fiber of his being is what he's become unquenchably thirsty for. His money. The thing this man has put his faith in, what he's begun to worship in a sense, and his love of it is competing with the God that he says that he wants to follow. A reminder as we turn our attention to the letter that we started with in 1 Timothy chapter 6. It was not a letter written to us, nor was it a letter written with us in mind. But this morning, we dared to ask God to use it to speak to us. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. 
those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. There is no doubt that Paul is writing, when he's writing, he's talking about the dangers of the love of money specifically. That was something that the people were dealing with, idolizing money, making a God out of it. And maybe you resonate with that this morning. Maybe the message that Paul gives to Timothy is one that you benefit from hearing this morning. Maybe you've made a God out of money and you need to surrender that this morning. But for those of us who don't feel like that's our primary struggle, we don't get to pack up and go home. Verse 9 says, Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Those who want to get rich. The question this morning is not, do you want to get rich? The question this morning is, what in your life are you looking to get rich on? The dangers of the love of money are transferable to anything. So this morning I have a few questions to ask you. What are you unquenchably thirsty for? What are you hoping will bring you security? What is making you selfish? What is leading you to make destructive decisions? What is causing you to be discontent? This could be food or alcohol. It could be parenthood or companionship or other people's opinions about you. If I can speak about my students real quick, I feel like when I talk to my students, what we have come to the conclusion what monopolizes their time the most is their phones. And we talk about it. Whether it's Instagram or Facebook or Snapchat or TikTok, social media is not a bad thing. But it becomes a bad thing when our thirst for it becomes unquenchable. The likes, the follows, it's never going to be enough. We talk to our students about it. It's never going to be enough to fill us up. And God has a life for us that he wants us to truly experience. So Trinity, my prayer for you and for me is that we will learn to run from the things that cloud our contentment. It's okay to hope and pray for things, to wish things were a certain way, but my prayer for you and for me is that we would not make idols out of what will someday fade away, the things that we can't take with us when we go. That we will take what we are thirsty for what we are looking for security in, and give it back to God.
skipping down in that letter that we read earlier, starting in verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth or success or parenthood or companionship or comfort or other people's opinions about him, which are so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. As Greg comes to play our final song, Trinity, let us take hold of life that is truly life. May it be so.